Well, good morning. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. I, have, I haven't been in build for a couple years, and so there's a, from year to year, a lot of times there's a lot of the same faces in here, but there's a lot of faces I don't know. I mean, I recognize a lot of you on Sundays, but it's just kind of fun to talk to a new group of you, and I'm just, for what it's worth, I just, build is one of my favorite ministries in this church. It's one of the most ministries that has just been the most foundational in my own life. Uh, coming to this church in 2007, I felt like I knew it all. You know, I had good Bible teaching, came from a strong church, and the first year I sat and build, it was just, oh wait, this isn't about just the theology I know, this, this, this has got to be impacting my own heart. And there was a lot of sanctification um, that needed to happen in a uh, little prideful, arrogant guy who thought he knew it, knew it all, and I just, I just love this ministry, and uh, thankful for Matt and his leadership and directing us there. And so this morning, we'll be talking more about the heart. And specifically from the book of Proverbs. And so before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the book of Proverbs. This, this week, in our small group, we are looking at the attributes of God, and we are looking at God's truthfulness, His faithfulness, um, the fact that God is a God who does not lie. God is faithful. His words are true. And I think sometimes when we read the book of Proverbs, and we read something like we get to the end of Proverbs chapter 30, and we read... Every word of God is tested, or I think at ESV, every word of God is true. When it comes to the book of Proverbs, I, I think, have you ever thought, you know, has, has every word of God in this book of Proverbs actually proven true? I mean, I'm in Proverbs 30, and I just read 29 chapters of these statements that s- says, if you do this, then this. And this is the blessing you're going to see if this is the kind of wise living you've been in. And I don't see those circumstances playing out in my life right now. Is Pro- are Proverbs really true? Is God really true and faithful in his word? And maybe, maybe you haven't actually questioned God's faithfulness. But maybe you've read a proverb and say, I just don't know if I see this playing out in my life. When I read this proverb and, you know, the, the, the man who's unrighteous seems to be prospering. And so I want to talk a little bit about how Proverbs work and how they don't work, um, especially when we find ourselves in a situation where our circumstances just don't seem to be um, playing out like the book of Proverbs might have indicated it possibly would. Um, Dan Phillips said, A proverb is a compressed statement of wisdom that is artfully crafted to be striking, thought-provoking, memorable, and practical. And that is, they, they, a, pro- a proverb makes an observation about the world that paints kind of these memorable, evocative images in a brevity of words, in very few words, about what wise w- living looks like. And uh, so proverbs are really good at doing that, about painting this picture of what, proverbs, of what wise living looks like. We want to take care to realize that proverbs are different than a promise of God. So one author said... Proverbs convey pithy points and principles, not precarious particular promises. A little alliteration there. When a proverb doesn't hold true in a given circumstance, it's not a failed prophecy. It's not a failed promise of God. right? Proverbs, by design, lay out these pointed observations that are meant to be memorized, pondered, but they're not always intended to be applied in every single situation across the board um, without qualification. So we just want to be, can I have that approach when we come to Proverbs and wisdom literature in general? And one quick example of that, if we look look at Proverbs 16, 7, 
when a man's ways are pleasing to Yahweh, he makes his enemies to be at peace with him. Right? The principle from this verse is evident. You know, our relationship with God is more important, more determinative than our relationships with people. But yet, if we, if we kind of press the words of that proverb into a here and now promise, we're going to run into grief. Um, or we're going to use this wrongly in our counsel of others, and we're going to cause tremendous grief in others. So, does this verse demand that we assume that if anyone hates us, that we must be displeasing God at that point in time? Or does God's favor mean that all of our relationships are going to be trouble-free and warm and fuzzy? Of course not. You know, the rest of the Bible shouts out that answer. You know, all we need to do is think of Jesus. No man was more pleasing to God. No man was more wrongfully hated and despised. So... That just kind of helps us put our put book of Proverbs in context. Um, if, in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the things that Solomon says as he looks around the world is that the, the world um, and the expected results of wise living are often overruled by God's sovereignty and they're overruled or, or frustrated or overturned by the sinfulness of man. And so while Proverbs contains does certainly contain some clear propositional truths. Um, largely what Proverbs contain are better and best understood as truisms. They're painting a picture of what is generally true and, and pointing you to what, is, what does it mean to, to live wisely in a fallen world. Um, so we want to understand the, the book of Proverbs alongside the rest of our wisdom literature, alongside Job, alongside Ecclesiastes, there, which are full of examples that would someone might be tempted to say, see, the evil man is not getting what he deserves, and the righteous man is only receiving injustice. Um, so Proverbs can't be true. No, we want to understand the wisdom literature books in our Bible complement one another, and they're best understood in light of one another. So we want to keep kind of Proverbs in their proper place, um, but we can learn about what it means to live wisely um, from them. And we shouldn't be despairing when what we observe in life isn't exactly what we see in Proverbs, when they don't seem to match up. Um, books such as Job and Ecclesiastes really help us kind of understand life in a sinful world with the sovereign God when things don't appear to be going the way we, we thought they expected to from the book of Proverbs. So just kind of an introduction to that. Um, and so as we dive in, I'm not looking to anchor on a particular problem and say, I mean, this is the promise, I'm taking this, if I do this, this is my expected result. No, I want to I look to it and say, God, how do you want me to live in, in a fallen world? How, what does wise living look like? Um, so with that, let me, let's just open up in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us wisdom and a painting a picture of what we sh how we should live in a way that would be pleasing to you. And Lord, thank you for sending your son who became wisdom on our behalf wisdom to us. Lord, may we have hearts that are willing to hear what your word has to say about, in particular, about our hearts, um, that we would trust your words and not our own. And Lord, may your word be convicting and um, fruit producing in our own lives. In your name we pray. Amen. So as we uh, look at what God says about the human heart in Proverbs, uh, we're going to probably spend most of our time on the, I think we have four, four truths from 
book of Proverbs for our hearts. And the first one is, do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment of my heart? And you guys have blanks there? Are you filling them in? Is that okay? okay. Perfect. Um, Proverbs 29 is the first verse there, and it, it's written for us um, there on the page. And it is, let me get there. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Right, this is a form of a rhetorical question that assumes a very specific answer. Who can say, I've cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. No one. Right, it's implied. And this is a, a statement by a, a wise Old Testament believer advising his son that no one can claim in any situation in life to have total or complete purity of the heart or of the motive. Right, so the heart, the inner man, always has some corruption in it due to sin. And that's just the way it is. And when we in build and we look at that foldable diagram of man, this is that um, mixed condition. The one in Christ, um, or the one the, the word of God, what it reveals about the one who's in Christ, their words, their thoughts, their actions, their attitudes, deeds, desires, all of them, each one of them is mixed. Every thought. And while the one in Christ has the ability to be influenced by truth and to have desires that are pleasing to the Lord, at the same time, our desires can be are impacted by the influence of the flesh and sin. So we can't look at our thought life and say, Man, that, that, was, that, was, that motive, my motive was completely pure there. Right? Who can say I've cleansed my heart from sin? I mean, our, our hearts are not pure from the impacts and the effects of sin. And that might be shocking. And as sinful men, um, how easily do we get bent out of shape when someone questions our motives? Maybe you're married. Maybe it's someone you work with. I'll, I'll tell you firsthand, in my condition, when I feel like my motives are questioned, maybe when I feel like my wife is questioning them, my heart is often so sinfully inclined to rush and to defend the purity of my motives in that conversation. No, no, no. You don't understand. That's not what I was thinking. In fact, maybe you found yourself in this situation. I will actually often sin against my wife in an attempt to argue and convince her of the purity of my motives. That, and that's, that's the deception of sin in my own heart. But, I, but so do I believe this? Do I actually believe that I cannot claim that my motives, my heart is pure? Uh, we need to question our motives. Um, as we enter into conversations with others, we need to be aware that our thoughts and motives, our hearts, our inner men are not pure. We're not pure. We're mixed. And that remembering that is going to, is going to help transform our relationships. And that but that isn't to say that we can't think right thoughts. Right? We can. We can have right thoughts. We can read the Word and think God's thoughts after Him. But in terms of what we say and what we choose and how we are motivated, we just need to be careful about what we say and how we assess our own hearts. Let me give you an example 
If you turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says it like this, For I am conscious of nothing against myself. In other words, he had examined himself and wasn't aware of anything impure, but notice what he says next, Yet I am not by this acquitted. What is it that he's admitting? I can't see impurity, but that doesn't mean I'm guiltless. I'm not qualified to be my own judge. And verse 4 continues, um, But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. There are things going on, Paul says, in the motives, in the hearts that are in darkness that we just can't see in ourselves. And we're trying to get the bottom to the bottom of them and we're just not able to. So there are going to be times when you will say in your own assessment of yourself that I just can't see that there was any sin here or that any motive, that, that there's some sort of sinful motive behind this particular decision or this pursuit. But that doesn't mean that you're acquitted because you can't see it. Um, let's go to turn to James 1 if we can. Verse 26 says, If any one thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. James says that it is possible to be deceived at the heart level. Right? And so that, that, that's a mixed condition. Nobody in heaven is being deceived by their heart, but we can be. But also notice the connection that James sees between the heart and a man's speech. An unbridled tongue is his evidence for a deceived heart. Um, skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So now just kind of quick takeaway from that is it's actually possible as a believer to have evil motives. Turn ahead to chapter 3, verse 9. Speaking of the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Right, so that's, that's a mixed mouth. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. I know we were just discussing a little bit the man who is double-tongued. That's a mixed mouth. And notice something very interesting. He says, my brethren, these things not, ought not to be this way. James actually includes himself in this when he says, we curse men. Notice how he addressed his readers, my brethren, my brothers. James isn't talking here to the world. 
James has been talking to believers. In the opening of the book, he calls for these believers to find joy in their trials. They've been scattered, need to be encouraged, and they also need to be instructed. And they are told it is possible for believers' mouths to speak good things and bad things. So as we see these warnings about speaking that which is evil and that which is good coming out of the same mouth, those who are stepping into places with potentially evil motives, he's been addressing believers. So these are, these are things that are not just true of the unbeliever. The unbeliever actually is not mixed. Um, the unbeliever is, but, but the b- believer is the one who has this blessing and cursing coming from the same mouth and still has the potential, even in Christ, to have evil motives. Luke 6.45, you don't have to turn there, it says the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So a, a mixed mouth is not a mouth problem. It's a, it's a heart problem. It's coming out of a heart that has mixed affections, mixed desires. So evil can reside in the heart of a believer. So if you have a difficult time controlling your speech when speaking with your wife or with your children or your parents or your roommates, the solution isn't simply to attempt to rein in your words, to bridle them. It's the heart that needs to be addressed. The man who has bridled his tongue has actually bridled his heart controlled his heart. So how, how is your speech? And what does your speech reveal about what is going on in your own heart? And so do you value God's assessment of your heart more than you value your own? And, and listen, we're, we're this, is, this, can be, this can be discouraging, but we are in an infinitely better condition when we are in Christ. Right? Are we not? Right? Previously, there was, there was nothing that was pure ever before in my own heart. There was no motive that was ever honoring to Jesus Christ. Even the good things that we might have done, right? Feeding our own children as unbelievers, it was a Jesus-less motive. And even though it was good, it didn't bring glory to Christ because Jesus wasn't at the center of it. But, but that's, that's what we used to be. Um, now it's much better. There is actually the possibility of good things good motives and but what we see in proverbs 29 20 verse 9 is that to be able to claim now that this heart of mine is completely empty of any impurity is a dangerous one and it's to misunderstand what it is to live in that mixed condition so we in response we should have an appropriate suspicion over our own hearts because of this wisdom from god right that who can say i have cleansed my heart from sin But I think in our lives, we tend to gravitate often to kind of one or two extremes in this area. Some people will gravitate towards never, ever finding anything good at any time, in any moment, in any place in our lives. There's never anything good, right? Paul said, I I agree with Paul, worm that I am. That's that's a man that needs to be encouraged. That's a man that needs to be encouraged. Verses like Romans 15.4, one you can write down. Paul says to... In Romans 15, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourself are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish, admonish one another. If you are in Christ, you have been filled 
with a goodness that makes you able to step into the body of Christ and care for one another. It's not about self-esteem, but it is recognizing that God has actually put something into this broken clay vessel that is good because of His work, and that you actually have something because of His work in you to contribute in the body of Christ. So avoid the extreme of thinking, man, there is just never anything good in anything that I do. No, God has actually regenerated us and actually put us in us the ability to please Him and obey Him because of His work. Uh, yeah, it was Romans 15, 14. Oh, 14. Yeah, 15 verse 14. It's it the right reference? Yeah, I, I heard 4. Okay. Right. Yeah, you're right. What, what's the other extreme, right? If somebody, it's somebody being prone to say, you know what, my motives are pure. Don't question my motives. Right? They, they don't question their own motives, so how dare you question their motives? Uh, and that's someone that is, a, is trusting in their own assessment of their heart, not in God's assessment of their heart. And so watch out for this, especially in your own hearts. Watch out, watch out for it when you're talking with others. And, and watch how quickly you are to rush to defend your own motives and your own desires. What does it say about the character of a man who can exercise self-control to not rush to defend his motives. Maybe it's a mess of co-workers, his family. But, but, what, but what if they're wrong in what they're saying? I have to clear my name. I mean, they're attacking my character. What if they're right? What if they're right and you just can't see it? What did Jesus do? Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before it shears, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus was wrongly oppressed, wrongly afflicted, wrongly accused, and yet he didn't rush to defend himself. Um, we, we need to be influenced by truth to navigate between these two poles. It's wise to say, like Paul, you know what? As far as I can tell, I can't see the impurity of motive here. Doesn't mean that it's not there. In fact, let's op open Scripture together and help me see what I might not be able to see on my own. Next verse there. Again, this is a, kind of a front-loaded section on point one. Is Proverbs 21.2. Proverbs 21, 2, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the hearts. How many times have you made your decision in your mind, and you're telling somebody about it, and maybe your wife, and you're convinced, this was a good decision. I mean, my logic, my reasoning was sound. I mean, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm telling somebody about the decision I made to buy a new house, and I'm explaining all the things that led up to me, why the timing was perfect, why I'm in a good financial situation. I mean, this, this was just a great decision. Um, I mean, you got the first part of this verse down without anyone ever telling you about it, is that your ways were right in your own eyes. And it sometimes just seems 
absolutely impossible that the path you've chosen is not the right path. Your self-assessment really here is at the extreme. We are far too easily impressed at times with our ability to actually choose the right path or to make an appropriate decision or the right action. In, in this verse, verse 2, what is it that our eyes are actually looking at in, the, in this verse? In this verse, our eyes are looking at and beholding our way, or it might be said in another translation, our path. So what our eyes are focused on is our way, our path. We look and we evaluate our decisions, our choices, our actions. We look at what we're doing, how we're going along that path or that way, but what is Yahweh looking at? He's looking at what's going on inside our own hearts. The inner you, the inner me, God is looking at the inner man throughout our decision-making process, and his sight is far more trustworthy because we, we, we are inclined to evaluate our actions. He's looking at what's going on in our hearts that are driving those actions. And so it's really easy for us to become unacquainted with our hearts throughout the day, to forget all the evil kind of processes, imaginations that are going on that might be occurring within our hearts at any moment. But God's always weighing the heart, and again, that's the reason why we need to value His assessment, because um, I'm only ever going to equip myself, and so will you. Proverbs 28:26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. So trusting in your own heart... You can focus, again, being impressed upon your own ways, your own right, or right decisions, your own thinking about a given topic, is contrasted with walking wisely. So you're either trusting your own heart or you walk wisely. You don't and cannot do both. So take a look at the passage and ask yourself, what does this proverb, 28-26, imply about the outcome if you do trust in your own heart. All right, this says, he who walks wisely will be delivered. What's the opposite of being delivered? He who trusts in his own heart will not be delivered. No, he will actually instead be left to endure the coming judgment or the coming consequence. He is trapped and actually finds himself in need of deliverance. So trusting your own heart actually leads to entrapment if we look kind of the implications of that particular verse. Our hearts are capable of good, but they're also capable of deception, and trusting it will actually lead us to being trapped and putting ourselves in a situation where we are now in need of rescue from a circumstance that we cause because of our own foolishness. So this is the caution. Um, do the results... Always, the results of the situations and the circumstances we find ourselves in, does that always reveal our heart condition? Does walking wisely always guarantee deliverance? No. And we need to be careful that we don't take a passage like this and think, you know what? I've experienced good results and blessings and provision and prosperity. Therefore, God is... It's because God is blessing my decisions, and so my, my heart must have been pure. 
Um, I, I, I'm evaluating the condition of my heart and the, and the purity of my decisions because, you know what, God has apparently blessed it. So I'm now justified in my decisions that I made back here. Um, now, the, these Proverbs, again, are generally true, they just, but they don't describe the way things are exactly every single time during the course of our lives without exception. It's generally true that if you humble yourself, right, God will lift you up. But there are times like when Job was humbled and he didn't get lifted up for a long, long time. His deliverance was not immediate. So don't simply look at the results to evaluate or justify trusting your, in your own heart. And that's what, that's what Proverbs 28, 26 says is foolish. Where, where do we, we to be trusting? Again, this is moving ahead to Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. This is a um, verse that many of us probably memorized as a kid. I, you know, I think I got a badge for memorizing this one <laughs> on, on my sash. Um, Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So here is the clear, very positive command concerning your inner man as a believer. Gather up everything that you are inwardly, your whole heart, all of your heart before God and entrust it to Yahweh. The, the negative command here is don't lean on and don't trust in your own understanding. Why? Right? All the prior verses. As you move outward from yourself to these paths or ways that you have chosen from your heart, you still need to acknowledge God as you walk. Solomon intends to make it clear that for the Old Testament believer, there should always be a looking away from self to God at the heart level. Right? This is, and it is generally true that God will make your path straight. You may have leaned, learned, or memorized this verse as a child like I did as, Trust in the Lord in all, with all your heart, and He shall direct thy paths. I don't know if you, if you, if you memorized it that way. Uh, this, this verb is probably best translated as actually make straight. That's the way the NASB translates it. The idea is not trust God and he will lead you down the right path or direct you to the right path. That kind of, kind of is the implication of trust in the Lord with all your heart and he will direct thy path. He's gonna, I, if I'm trusting him, he's just going to help me do what I make the right decisions. That, that, that's not what's going on in this verse. Um, contrary this verse is not about kind of mystically revealing for you um, God's will and having, helping you to make a right decision if you trust Him. No, the idea is not about choosing the right path, because in this case, you're already going down a path. You've already, you already have a way or a direction that you're going. So it's not like, okay, I'm trying to decide what path I'm going to take, and if I trust God, I'm going to go down the right one. No, you're already in the midst of wherever you find yourself. You are in a way or a path or direction. And you might have actually chosen any number of different paths. Notice the verse says, in all your ways or in all your paths, whichever path you happen to go down in the direction you're traveling, um, you must trust Yahweh. 
And on any path that you're walking down, there are potentially going to be obstacles. And probably some you can see, and some you can't. And while you're traveling along one of these potentially dangerous ways or paths, this command comes. Trust Yahweh with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. So then what does Yahweh do? Yahweh smooths the paths of the wise man who acknowledges and trusts him with each and every step. He makes the path straight. He removes obstacles from the path that, he, that might have otherwise hindered us if we had trusted in ourselves as he traveled the path. I remember what we said about your own heart that can lead to entrapment or the opposite of deliverance. A similar idea is here. As you go down your chosen path, if you are doing it, trusting your own heart, you are going to find traps and obstacles as you go down this path. But Yahweh is going to remove some of those traps and obstacles. He is going to smooth the path if you're trusting in Him instead of your own heart. Right? Sure, that, sure there will still be obstacles. We live in a fallen world. There will be obstacles as a result of God's sovereignty, man's sinfulness. But don't let there be obstacles in your path that exist solely because you were content to trust in your own heart. Um, there will be obstacles and trials that will be thrown in front of you when you are trusting in your own heart. So be careful of your own assessment. If you trust in your own assessment of your heart, something has gone wrong. Um, you need to trust God's assessment of your own heart. Um, what has He given us to do that? How about Hebrews 4.12? The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. You want to assess your own heart. Lay it before God's Word, which is actually able to decipher the thoughts and intentions that might be blind to you. Yep? Could it be said that a straight path is one that doesn't Yeah, I, possibly. I just I think the, the implications of that. Um, I, I think uh, I, 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 if I read their verse, I want to make sure that I'm not. They, what I'm taking away from it is not that. Hey, I, I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to find the straight path that I'm going down. I think the kind of some of the, the the imagery or the the words there are less about making this path straight in terms of left to right. I think the, the, the kind of the imagery behind the word is actually a smooth path that is, you know, you, you're picturing like a king advancing and prior to a king that goes and travels into a 
there would be those who would be running before him and actually smoothing out the boulders out of the path so that the king's uh, approach could actually be done on a smooth path. So um, I, I don't think it was as, so much as uh, I'm trying to find the right path that should be going down, but in, more in terms of the... Uh, I, I think it's more specifically in, our, in, in reference to the difficulty of travel down a particular path. Um, yeah, clearing the way. And I think that so I think that's kind of what the kind of the imagery is behind um, the making the path straight. Not so much don't take a, a wide route, a direct route versus a wide route, but more of a of a road that is treacherous to travel and is full of holes and ravines and obstacles that you might get trapped in versus, versus smooth. I just think that's some of the imagery of it. But but to the but to the point of the question of a of a straight path or a the path that. Uh, I'm not so much looking at this saying, God, help me choose the right path. This isn't a verse about decision-making. Yeah. Uh, like in terms of uh, there's a right decision that's the right path and there's a wrong path. That's what I'm going here. It's certainly applicable. I do need to trust the Lord so that I make, in terms of making a good decision, I want to trust his wisdom, not my own. But um, so, but I, I don't think the concept is, that, that, I don't think it's incorrect. So, all right. Um, Kind of the next question is, so as we look, we're just kind of in wrapping up point one, it's important to measure our own heart. But not so that you would trust in your own heart, but so that you would look away from it and trust Yahweh and acknowledge him. Um, and by the way, if the heart was always pure, why would you need God's word to discern his thoughts and intentions? Um, we'll move ahead in point two, and we'll move a lot quicker now. Um, this is... Point two says, am I more inclined to carefully control my heart or blindly follow my heart? We have three Proverbs here. We'll kind of address these, read these all together. Proverbs 6.25, do not desire beauty in your heart. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Proverbs 7.25, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Are these all printed on your page? Yeah. Okay, I want to make sure because I didn't give you a chance to turn there. Uh, Proverbs twenty three seventeen. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of Yahweh always. So Solomon's clear expectation for his son is that his son would actually control his inner man. That he would control his own heart. He would shepherd it. Shepherd it. Control it in what sense? Don't desire her beauty in your heart. That's on you, son. Don't do it. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't look over there. Control your heart. Don't let your heart envy sinners. So what do these verses imply about the believer's heart? Uh, they imply that the believer's heart is wayward, needs to be carefully watched over, it's prone to wander, our hearts are wayward, but guess what? It is actually our job, our task, our command to control it. You are responsible when your heart is out of control. You're accountable to keep it under control. You're not to trust it. All right, so this is, this is the reason for the command in Proverbs 4.23. Um, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Write down another verse, Proverbs 21. I'm sorry, 23, 19. 
Listen, my son, and be wise. Direct your heart in the way. There is, there is Old Testament wisdom for your heart. Watch over your heart. Shepherd your heart. Direct it. Control your heart. If you blindly follow what, what commands come out of your heart, you might actually do some good things, but you might actually lead yourself astray as well and experience some significant consequences. You are accountable to control your heart, not let it control you. And that, that, Proverbs, that means, as Proverbs 23.19 says, states, it needs to be directed. It doesn't naturally go down the, the right direction. It needs directing. It needs controlling. You need to step in and actually shepherd your heart in the direction and the way that it actually should go. So are you more inclined to carefully control your heart or blindly follow your heart. Um, Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six. When you looked at that, he trusts in his own heart as a fool. Here's another passage, not on your handout. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight says, "Like a city that is broken into without walls, is a man who has no control over his spirit." So, so just as a city that has no walls is extremely vulnerable to being broken into and besieged, so you are vulnerable to temptation when you have no control of your inner man or in, and in your heart. So if I, am, if I am not controlling my heart and directing it, I am, I am now vulnerable to attack. That kind of leads us to the point number three, fourth truth about or our heart or lessons for the heart is do I know we, you know hearts are vulnerable especially when we're not directing it do I know the ways in which my heart is vulnerable right and all of our all of us are, are built differently we all have different areas where we our hearts are more vulnerable than others and so to be effective in watching over our heart we really need to be aware of where our particular weaknesses are, how our hearts are vulnerable. So here are just just two words that sh- two or two two proverbs that show how the heart can be weakened, can be brought down, how they can be made sick. These are not exhaustive, uh, but just kind of serve the point. As you read scripture and you see the warnings about their own heart, do you recognize the where your own heart is? susceptible. Uh, the first one is Proverbs 12:25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Um, what impact does the sin of anxiety or worry have on your heart? It's weighed down. It sinks. It sinks like a stone under the weight of that sin. Has your own heart ever kind of felt like that? Um, this a despair? Perhaps it feels like that now. Perhaps your job is in jeopardy. Um, for the first time in your life, maybe you don't know where this week's meals are going to come from. Maybe you're fearful of getting sick. Anxiety has, a, has an impact, has an effect on our own hearts. 
and the disposition of them and makes it vulnerable to temptation in a wide variety of ways. So let's talk a little bit about anxiety for a second. You know, what is what is anxiety? Why is it a sin? When we are anxious, and we, we just looked at Proverbs 3, that we are to trust in Yahweh with all our hearts. When we are anxious, we're actually trusting in ourselves rather than the Lord. Let me say that again. When we are anxious, we are trusting ourselves more than the Lord. Let's look at that passage um, that we're in front of us, but we're going to look at it kind of from the end first. A good word makes the heart glad. Um, a good word here is necessarily a word that is true. When we remind ourselves about truth, the gospel, what is true about God, His wisdom, His control over all things, His, His knowledge, and that this current situation I'm in isn't outside of God's control. It's not unknown to Him. In fact, He is actually orchestrating this event and circumstance for my own good. There's no reason to have true anxiety over a situation. Um, but when we find ourselves in a difficult situation, we begin to become anxious, we're actually doubting God's goodness. And we're not talking about not preparing for the future, wise approaches to situations, but we're talking about true fear and worry that is rooted in the fact that I am trusting more in myself than I am in the Lord. So instead of trusting God, His character, His word, we be, instead become convinced that it's up to us to find a way out of this situation. Right? And some situations are really, really difficult. And we're going to very, very quickly realize, you know, I'm in over my head. And while I'm attempting to seize control over a situation, we often are very well aware of the fact that, you know, this seems to be too big for me to fix on my own. Um, we have limited means, limited capacity in ourselves to endure the situation, and that can drive us to despair. So how is your heart vulnerable? Uh, when, you're, when your heart is not bolstered by the truth of who God is and what He has revealed in His Word, your heart is vulnerable. When you're in a difficult situation that tests your limits, your heart is vulnerable. Anxiety is a heart-shepherding moment. Can I trust the Lord in the midst of this situation? Uh, we sin because we're leaning on our own understanding. We're not acknowledging Him in all our ways. We're certainly not acknowledging His sovereignty. We're not acknowledging His goodness. And so when we're anxious, we're actually contending and fighting with God for sovereignty over our lives. And we often tend to think of, of anxiety as this personality trait rather than this sin of self-trust and self-dependence that's taking place at the heart level. Um, anxiety is not this opposite, the opposite of optimism, but rather it's a symptom of pride. It is discontentment. It is a lack of trust in who God is and what He has said. Right? It's a sign of resident unbelief in the heart of even a believer. 
But there's good news in this proverb, right? There's good news that look how easily encouraged the anxious heart can be. Your heart might be sinking to depths of anxiety where the gospel just seems unbelievable. Your hope seems to have vanished. But then notice the end of the verse. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Right? Whether that good word is God's word, encouraging word from a friend that is grounded in truth, our hearts can be encouraged. Right? There is hope. The heart can find hope in a good word. And so don't underestimate the effectiveness of truth and encouragement from God's word and from within the body of Christ in helping a wayward heart turn away from sinful anxiety. There is, there, there is a remedy for our hearts. There is hope. And sometimes we convince ourselves that you know, God's word is not, I know I'm supposed to read God's word as 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 a believer, but I'm I'm there's I'm content. I'm trying to figure out a way out of this situation rather than looking to God's word. Do I recognize that my vulnerable heart can actually be ministered to, can actually be transformed by God's word? Do I underestimate the the impact of God's word upon my own heart? Um, we're gonna, okay, I'm gonna skip. I think Proverbs 30, 13, 12. And just kind of quickly kind of wrap up. Um, we'll kind of skip to number four. Uh, when I am in trouble, do I ever back up and consider my heart? Um, kind of quickly look at a few of these verses. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. This is Proverbs 18, 12, sorry. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. That's prideful or arrogant. But humility goes before honor. How blessed is a man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So we, in these one, we, we see that the man who is humble, humility goes before honor. But the man who hardens his heart is, falls into calamity. We want to remember what we said earlier. These are generalizations that are generally true in life. They're not always going to be true in every single situation, every single time. But if you come upon destruction in someone else's life, a life that is undone spiritually, perhaps a ministry that is undone spiritually, a relationship that is unraveling, the presence of that kind of destruction is an opportunity to stop and to evaluate the influence that pride possibly had possibly had in bringing that destruction about because before destruction the heart of man is prideful um, similarly the presence looking at Proverbs 28 14 which we just read the presence of calamity is an opportunity to evaluate the hardness or softness of our own hearts what was the condition of my heart prior to this calamity. We want to remember that just because we are in the midst of destruction, a relationship that's in trouble, it doesn't automatically mean that we're there because of arrogance or hardness of heart in our own life. 
right? Job is the example of a man who was not in sin, but his life was one big calamity. But notice what this man who is hardening his heart in verse 28, 14 is contrasted with. He who hardens his heart will fall into calamity is contrasted with fearing always. So what does that mean in the context of Proverbs? Fearing always fearing always refers to what? It, it's, it's the fear of the Lord. The one who is walking in wisdom. So the existence of trouble, calamity, spiritual unraveling, we want to be careful not to just automatically assume, like we were warned ahead of time, that the results that I see are necessarily the consequence always every time of, of what the, what maybe some sin in the life of myself or another believer, right? That's what Job's friends wrongly did. They looked at his calamity and said this was the consequence of sin. But we do have Proverbs that say it is generally true and it's often true that humility will often lead to honor. And pride will often lead in hardening of the heart and will often lead to calamity. So while it's not, we're not looking for a guide to interpret the condition of my own heart based upon my circumstance, it is a reminder that there are proverbs that do draw a connection between them that are often true, not always. And so if I find myself in the midst of calamity, in the midst of trial, do I step back and assess what was going on in my own heart? What was going on in my life prior to this? Is this something that God is using the circumstance to reveal what was there? Um, and, and so it's, a, it's an appropriate time for us to do that, but not to assume that's the case. And particularly when we come along somebody in the church in our small group, and we see them going through an extremely difficult time, an extreme, maybe they've got the loss of a job. I want to have the opposite approach. I don't want to immediately assume that this is a consequence of a hard heart. Um, it might be. And I might want to help them assess that, whether it's possibly. Uh, but it's not always the case. But it is helpful because I want to still believe these words and these, these verses in Proverbs that draw a connection that often God allows, allows us to experience the consequences or blessings of our actions, of our hearts, of our sinful choices in this life. So it is an opportunity for us to step back and to assess. How did my own heart, the condition of my own heart, how did my own sin potentially lead me to this area? It's not going to be the case every time. Um, God may have a completely different purpose and completely different reason for allowing you to, to suffer in the way you are. Or some, and we don't know what that is. We know it's for His glory. We know it's for your good. Um, but do we stop back and assess? When we find ourselves in turmoil and conflict, do we stop back and assess and say, Lord, how, how did my own heart lead me here? Um, help me to see the sin that I cannot assess on my own, that I would equip myself up. Let me open your word, because I want to trust your assessment of my, of my life to your word.
and run to his words so that he can help us reveal the sin, so that he, he, his living word would reveal the sin that we may have been missing. So as we step into one another's lives, uh, that we would, we would have those, that, we, that we'd have that appropriate balance, that we would recognize that um, our hearts, just as our hearts are vulnerable, just as our hearts are susceptible of being deceived, the one who I come upon whose life is unraveled, they, they may be deceived, their hearts may be deceived, and I want to help them to see what the Word says about their trust in their own heart and offer them hope. There's actually hope in the midst of their trial because it is based on what God has said, not on our own assessment, not upon our own wisdom to get out of a situation. So can I help them see um, what God has revealed about their heart and their situation? And do I appropriately step back when I find myself in calamity to evaluate what was the condition of my heart and, and approach it with an appropriate suspicion of my own hearts and motives? Um, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we ask that you would help us to be men who trust in your assessment of our hearts. Lord, I am so quick to believe that my motives are right, my motives are pure, and I completely forget the truths that are all over Scripture that warn us of the consequences of trusting your own hearts. We read the book of Judges and we're reminded of what an entire society of those who do what is right in their own eyes looks like. Lord, may we be men who look to you in all of our decisions as we assess our motives, that we're looking to you and what your word has to say, that we trust your assessment of our own hearts, and that we would have an appropriate suspicion of our own hearts. Not an unhealthy one, but one that recognizes that there is sin that we just often cannot see. And may that be transformative of our relationships. When we step into our families and the lives of others, may we be armed with a helpful biblical view of the heart and how our hearts are influenced. And then may we look when our hearts are in despair, first and foremost, to your word for hope. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen.